to uh, our passage for this morning. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. And um, again, if you're visiting for the first time or maybe the first few times, a special welcome. We have been studying the Gospel of John this year. Uh, It's the fourth book in the New Testament and uh, very central to understanding who Jesus is and what he did. But we're taking a break during Advent. Advent's just a, an old term for the celebration at Christmas time, especially the, the uh, four Sundays leading up to Christmas where we celebrate uh, the incarnation that God the Father sent God the Son and God the Son became man uh, for us, the very things that we've been singing about. But um, if you don't have a Bible, you can for- follow in the order of worship, Second Corinthians 9 beginning in verse 6. You know, if you, if you look in church history and even just look around at the church landscape right now, you'll see that uh, in different <clears throat> Christian traditions that sometimes there is a truth from Scripture or a verse or a passage that one tradition will really seize on and really emphasize and, and underscore in a way that other traditions will not. For instance, and this is one that's relevant to where we are in the the calendar right now, that Mary, Jesus' mother, when she found out uh, not only that she's with child, but but who she's carrying, carrying, and uh, an angel has told her very specifically that this is not just merely a human child, but you're carrying the Son of God, that you get, these, uh, you get these just kind of exclamations of praise and celebration. And one of the things that she says in one of the Gospels is, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. Now, what some Christian traditions have done with that uh, makes some of us nervous. But the thing is, if you get nervous about it, the right response is not to say, uh, well, then let's just not even talk about that verse. She did say, and we do have it in Scripture, that all generations would call her blessed. And that means something. You know, to use a double negative, it doesn't mean nothing. All right, now I want you to think about this, that there are passages in the Bible that, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier about the the money-grubbing preachers or kind of the, the televangelist type have seized on and really underscored and really emphasized and really preached and taught about to the point where if you're not wanting to come across as the money-grubbing preacher or the money-grubbing church or the, you know, just financially driven ministry, that you can really distance yourself from those passages and just say, well, I don't want to come across like, you know, like those guys, so let's just not even talk about that. That is not wise. All of God's Word is there for the taking. And the reason I feel the need to say that is that this passage this morning that we're looking at is about giving, uh, financial giving. And we're looking at this in tandem with Advent. And here's what I want you to see. If you don't see this, then, then you really have, will not have seen what this text is about and even really what this morning is built around in our worship. And that is this that there is a situation that the Apostle Paul, who wrote Second Corinthians, he's writing to this church in Corinth. And you need to know that Corinth was a wild, wild place. 
Uh, many a commentator and teacher has said that from an American's point of view, this was the New Orleans and Las Vegas of the ancient world. Port city, very immoral, a lot of money coming through there. That was Corinth. And a group of men and women have become Christians, and there's a church. This is the second letter we have from Paul to this church. And he's writing them about that there is going to be a collection taken in their midst to give uh, to poverty-stricken Christians in Jerusalem, which really is home base for Christianity. That this collection will be taken and will be sent to Jerusalem to alleviate their suffering. And I want you to see how this text is a guilt-free zone. It is a guilt-trip-free zone. But it really motivates. Now, how do you motivate people to give without guilt trips? In a way that sticks. All right, look with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, He has distributed freely He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission, flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift. Amen. Let's ask God to bless our time in His Word. Let's pray. Our Father, uphold us and give us the ears that we need. We pray that we would not so much fixate about our level of generosity. We pray that you'll give us a right view of ourselves, but we pray that it will come from seeing something of your generosity. We pray that we would see and taste and feel that this morning from your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a writer, he's actually a pastor and a a writer, 
named Eric Jacobson, um, who, who wrote about an experience he had when he went on a trip that he had really been looking forward to. And let me give a little explanation here. Uh, Eric Jacobson, like I said, he's a pastor, but he has become interested, became interested several years ago in something called new urbanism. Now, living in Greenville, you need to know this term because it shows up in the news periodically. Uh, New urbanism has been a sort of revitalization of thoughts about how do you structure a neighborhood or a town or a city that even if you're building one from scratch, you know, making a greenfield into a neighborhood or a town, how do you do it not so much in brand new models but older models? that the way towns and cities used to be built around the world seem to facilitate community. Um, Put your most important things in the center of the town. Give the most important institutions places of prominence. Give them sort of timeless architecture. Make meaningful destinations walkable. Uh, Actually have sidewalks. (laughs) And you might bump into other people. Imagine that. Uh, Put storefronts not behind a giant parking lot. Put them right up by the sidewalk. Uh, have things that are built for people, not for cars. All right, that's new urbanism. Very, very uh, influential on Greenville's development over the last 15 or 20 years. So Eric Jacobson said there's a trip he had really been wanting to take, and that was to Seaside, Florida. Uh, Seaside, Florida was carved basically out of nothing being there by architects who were at the front edge of this movement called New Urbanism. And so they had, from scratch, built a town with these principles. And so uh, Eric goes for a conference that's being held there, couldn't wait, and uh, so he unloads his stuff in his place where he's staying, and he goes to the town center just thinking that I'm going to see all this thriving community, you know, that's been brought about by this town being built this way, and there's no one there. And uh, so he kind of just has coffee by himself you know, at this table and says, well, you know, it may be an off night. He said it was kind of unseasonably cold for Florida. He gets up the next morning and the same thing happens. And he overhears a conversation where a lady is talking about um, who actually lives there. Most of the people in Seaside don't live there. They're visitors, which is one of the problems with developing community. And he hears a lady who lives there say, so-and-so is staying next to us. They're as friendly as can be, but I don't want new friends. And what he went on to reflect on is this. He said, you know what? I'm sold on the way people are trying to think about how do you build a neighborhood? How do you build a town where it doesn't get in the way of real community? How do you build a space to facilitate it? But, But he said this as a Christian. You can facilitate it, but you cannot build any space that will produce it. You can try not to get in the way of it, but you can't manufacture it. Because people can take very private suburban hearts wherever they go, right? Now, here's what I want you to think about. It is easier to give from your means than it has ever been almost without any feeling of doing it. Um, It is very easy to set up, for instance, a bank draft. 
It is very easy to give online. I mean, you don't even have to have a little thing on your monitor to slide your card through. You just, you know, type some numbers and boom. Uh, Someone was telling me last week about uh, that they were familiar with a church where there was actually a kiosk in the lobby where you could just slide your, your credit card or your debit card and give right there like it was an ATM machine. In other words, technology has lent itself to facilitating giving. But facilitating it cannot produce generosity. And everyone who studies this comes up with the same results, is that uh, generosity is at something of a low. When our, even though we're in an you know, economic downturn, still, globally speaking, there's great wealth in our midst. Uh, Our giving per capita is less in the United States right now than it was in the pit of the Great Depression. We are shaking in our boots at 10% unemployment. At the pit of the Great Depression, 24%. One out of every four employable people did not have a job. Per capita, per person, the ratios were higher. Now, I want to say on the front end, this is not going to be guilt trip morning. But the recognition is you can facilitate it. It will not put it in the heart. Now, again, what do you have in this text? You've got the apostle saying this. I'm coming, uh, sending an envoy to take up this collection in your midst to give to your brothers and sisters in Jerusalem who are really in a bind right now. But, again, the amazing thing about this text is it is is a guilt-trip-free zone. So how does Paul motivate... And that's what I want to look at this morning. I want to look at two things. First off, what's the flavor of the motivation? What's the flavor of it? What's not there and what is there? And then what's the real source of it? What's the fuel of it? Okay, the flavor and then the source or the fuel. All right, the flavor of the motivation. Um, Think about this. When you have heard appeals to give, what do they typically sound like? And and I would say especially if if you've been in church or you've heard Christians teach on this, what can it sound like? Or what can uh, the solicitation letters that you're getting pounded with right now? Is everybody getting pounded with those? Everybody's coming to you in your mailbox. We need money. We need money. And you typically get three things, especially if it's Christian at all. The first thing is you get a real description and underscoring of the scarcity of the need. Here, here are the stats. Here's how bad it is. Here's why we're writing this letter. Here's why uh, I'm, I'm teaching this lesson. Then you get an underscoring of the rule. You know, and, and again, if it's Christian in nature, you'll, you'll, you'll get a text sort of maybe not just commending generosity, but commanding it. So reminder of the rule. And then to varying degrees, kind of a scolding for how this isn't happening the way it should. And the question is, is that really motivating? Because usually that is the template. I heard a comedian, um, and, uh, and he's one of these lethal combinations of uh, he's very naughty and he's very funny, and, and those, that always does me in. Uh, so I'm not even going to tell you who it was, but, and I can't quote it as he said it, but he said this. He, he, was, he was describing the, the infomercials and the, the TV solicitations 
um, for poverty ministries. And he said, you know what? I'm watching TV, and I come across these, and I feel bad, but I'm telling you, I never give. And he said, and I blame the spokesman. He said, because they always use a spokesman who's like an older guy in a plaid shirt. And he's kind of talking to you like, you know, he's your buddy, and you know, what can we do to help these people out? He said, look, I'm telling you, I'm a selfish jerk, and that is not going to motivate me. He said, what I think I need is for them to have a spokesman who's a guy about my age with two or three days growth on his face in a leather jacket to just walk up and just cuss me out. (laughs) To just chew me out on the infomercial and say, look, write the check. And he said, and now that we have computer-generated imagery, when I then feel bad and I flip to other channels, they could CGI that same guy into other TV shows to follow me. So, like, if I flip over to Lost or something, that same guy can just walk up on the island and say, did you not hear me the first time? Write the check. <laughs> now, it, 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 you know, it was naughty and all that, but I, it was funny, but the thing is, even that would not really work. I mean, it's funny to think about Uh, It's silly, it's over the top, but it would not work because that does not have power to motivate. And I want you to think about this. What would be the opposite of, you know, underscoring the scarcity, here's the need, profound need, underscoring the rule, here's what you're commanded to do if you take this seriously, and sort of scolding you for not doing it. What would be the total opposite? It would be to underscore abundance, fullness, it would be to say, I'm not giving you any rule. You're free to do what you want. And then not to scold, but to actually commend for here's how great it's going to be when you do this. That is exactly how this text reads. All right? It is the opposite of the bad template. Look in verse 6. Do you get the, do you get the emphasis on ba- how bad... Your Christian brothers and sisters in Jerusalem have it. What do you get? Here's the principle. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. I mean, he's honest. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Look in verse 10. Listen to the language. Do you get the statistics? Do you get the gloom and doom? Verse 10. He, God, who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. All right, what about the rule? Wouldn't this be the great time to remind them about tithing? In the Old Testament, the command was give 10% of your gross. Wouldn't this be the golden opportunity to say that? What does he say in verse 7? Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And then he does this. Rather than scold them about, why did you not send this to them, to your brothers and sisters sooner? Look in verses 11 and 12. He says, look, when you give, whatever we take up, when we give it, here's what's going to happen and it's going to be awesome. Verse 11, you will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. He's saying this, that look, 
whatever physical needs will be cared for by this gift, that is the tip of the iceberg. But what I'm wanting you guys to see is this, is it's going to have this ripple effect where it spills over, where not only your needs are met, and as you're generous, God enables you to become more generous, but it's, and it's not only going to take care of the needs of these saints, these Christians in Jerusalem, but it's going to spill over in its effects to the surrounding community that's watching these people. Because word is going to get out. This city, this pagan city, Corinth, idol-worshiping city, there are people there who love you. And they have sent this money for you. And word is going to get out and people are going to thank God and it's going to make worship happen that wouldn't have happened before because you gave. Did you get any scolding in there? No scolding. That's that's the flavor of it, all right? So what is the source? Why is Paul able to confidently write as if, I already know you're going to do this and it's going to be great. I give you no rules, you have freedom, but here's why it's going to be great. Where does that come from? And I want you to see this. He gives sort of a general reason for it and then he gives some particulars. All right, now what's the general one? First off, what is God like? What is the God that we know? What's He like? Verse 8. God is able... Listen for the word all, okay? God is able to make all grace abound to you. And let's stop or this text won't make any sense. What is grace? Uh, I used to explain grace as being... Um, if I told you I'll pay you uh, $25 to cut the yard, if you cut the, the yard or that part of the yard and I give you $25, that's wages. And what I used to say when I would try to explain or you know, illustrate grace is that, but what if I just walked up to you and gave you $25? Now that is grace. And I think really that's not the case. Uh, if you did not cut the yard, but you did punch me in the face, and I give you $25, unearned, undeserved. It's not just lack of merit. It's the presence of demerit. That not only am I not going to punch you back, take, take this free... That's grace. And what is Paul saying? Hey, Corinthian Christians... God doesn't just, you know, give a little grace over here and a little grace over there, but, you know, let's watch this because there's limited resources. He will pour grace over your head. He will pour grace over your head till He saturates you with it. He will hand you a cup of grace, and you can drink, 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 and that thing is spilling off the sides. It's so full all the time. Verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Um, I I had a, a friend say this to me about what he felt as a man who became a Christian later in life, the feeling of it. He said, it's not that I don't have struggles anymore. It's not that I don't disobey God every day. But he said, there is this felt sense in my life that when old temptations come, that I'm able to say, in a way, 
no, thank you, I'm full. You know, that, that it's easier to walk into a bakery if you just ate. If you walk into a bakery when you're hungry, you're done for, right? The smell looks so good. But if, if you are absolutely stuffed, it's a different sensation. He said, the grace of God pours over you, saturates you, fills your needs and your desires. Not just needs, but desires. So that when these things come, there's the ability to say, no, thank you, I'm full. And do you know what that frees you up to do? Is to obey Him. Not to gratify self, but to say, what would you have me do? And to find gratification in that. That's what God is like. But then He says this, something particular. Look in verse 13. He says, when we, when we take these gifts to Jerusalem, it's going to be great. And people are going to be thanking God. And they're going to be giving glory to God. And he says, glory to God for what? Verse 13. They will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel, the good news of Christ. Now tell me this. Why would people in Jerusalem get so lit up about Corinthian confession of Christ. Think about this. That when they received this money, I mean, you know, not like checks or ATM slips, but like literal coins. And they're looking at them, and they're thinking about where did this come from? It came from a city that was renowned for sexual immorality. Renowned and for idol worship. And that the reason they sent these coins to you, whom they have never met, is that they were told that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who was worshipped in Jerusalem, that that God took all their idol worship and guilt away. I don't mean guilt feelings, I mean their guilt. So much so that Paul says earlier in this letter, God made him who didn't have any sin to be sin for you so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. In other words, when you went to pagan temples of which sexual expression would be part of the worship, that Jesus, who never did anything like that, he became that for you. So that, if you believe in Him, you would become the righteousness of God in the eyes of God. And that was so overwhelming to them that they sent this to you. Because your brothers and sisters in that same confession, in a sense, these coins are the token of the fact that they were bowled over. And here's what I want you to see, guys, because, all right, we're, we're never going to receive the coins from the Corinthians, but what did we receive? What is the shared rece- reception in this room? Verse 15 says what? Thanks be to God for His... Some translations say inexpressible. Some say indescribable gift. The, the, that word in Greek is the only place that word is used in the New Testament. And Paul was no dum-dum. He had a pretty good command of the Greek language. 
And he gets to this phrase and he says, Thanks be to God for... I don't know what to say about it. I don't know what to say about it. Now, what are we supposed to do with this? Because here's here's what I would imagine. I would imagine that right now, if you're thinking, what's the takeaway of all this? You might be thinking the takeaway is, yeah, you know what, you're right. You're right. Um, We do need to give in a way that reflects what we believe that Jesus did. If that is your takeaway this morning, I have failed you. I have failed you. Because you know what? The reason we don't need to say, yeah, you know what, I need to give in a way that reflects, you know, what we really believe about Jesus. We already do. We already do. Whatever Bible fill-in-the-blanks we're able to do this morning, whatever theology test we can, we can fill in, in a sense, it is not nearly as indicative as the bent of the heart to let things go. There's a sociologist who teaches at the University of Notre Dame right now named Christian Smith, and he just wrote a book about Christians and giving and generosity. He's not a pastor. It's not a Sunday schooly kind of book. It's, it's a lot of data about what is going on in American Christianity and generosity. And listen to what he said in an interview. He was asked, why do American Christians give so little? Because he said that he knew it probably wouldn't be great, but as he looked at the data, as a sociologist, he was taken back by things that were coming up, like that 20% of professing Christians give zero. All the, all the sermons, all the lessons, I, 20% give nothing. And, and he said this, uh, why do American Christians give so little? He said, many people have little perspective on how wealthy they are. Now, he means literal. And they view themselves as just getting by. Now, catch this. They objectively have the resources to give generously, but subjectively... They think they don't. That is a very, very perceptive insight. That objectively, there there are the means to send out the door, to share, to give. But that doesn't matter if subjectively, at a felt level, you feel like, I'm just getting by. If that's the feeling that grabs you, then that is the real theology. That is the real theology. What do we do about that? And what I would say to you is this. We come back to what Paul offered. What we need is not scolding. What we need is not harping on, you must give X amount. It's, it's, it's clear that's not working in the American church. What we need to do is come back to, what is the nature of this gift? Um... There was a guy lived, uh, he graduated from college 100 years ago, Yale, class of 09, named William Borden. And he came from real money. Uh, it was not the dairy Bordens, but it's a very old family in the United States. Uh, his dad was a very wealthy attorney. And his heir uh, was William. Went to Yale and was just renowned as a scholar and an athlete 
and a gentleman and someone who loved Jesus. Um, as an undergrad, he had quite a bit more money than his peers did, even at Yale. But no one knew it because he gave so much money away. And after he died, some of his relatives went through his check stubs and they realized that during his undergraduate years, he gave away $70,000 to missions and poverty ministry in New Haven, Connecticut, where Yale is. He, set, he started a rec- rescue mission as an undergrad. And th- there were testimonies of just men who were drunks, lifelong alcoholics that said, that man, they didn't know he was wealthy until... I'll tell you in a second what happened. They said, I had no idea he was a millionaire. He just always was honest with me, and he cared about me. He uh, graduates from Yale. He goes to Princeton Seminary, trains for missions, and he was very burdened about going to a part of China where the population was Muslim in the western part of China. And so because they're Muslim... After he graduates from seminary, his training was to go to Egypt to study Arabic and to study the Quran. Incredible reputation behind him. He was kind of like a Tim Tebow with some Danny Werfel thrown in, you know, uh, just extremely respected, handsome, the whole package. Um, Yale, Princeton Seminary, he goes to Cairo, he starts learning Arabic, he develops cerebral meningitis, and he dies a month later. Twenty-five. 25 years old. And there were people in his life when he was in college who said, look, you are set up for success. Do not go to this just literally remote corner of the world and disappear. And he was convinced, you know, some people, that's, that's some people's calling. My calling is to go to these people, and I'm going to these people. And here's the amazing thing. <clears throat> if he had gone into business, you probably never would have heard of him. But there are numerous institutions around the world with his name. Uh, he, he had already set up his will so that $1 million went out the door when he died. All to the spread of the gospel. Um, when he died, there was a memorial service at Princeton Seminary. And then there was a second one that day at an African-American church in Princeton where he taught Sunday school for two years. Most people didn't know that. There there were such memorials around the world, China and the United States. And in New York City, at one of these memorial services, there was a businessman very successful in New York named Hugh Monroe. And when he was speaking, he said something that nails what we're talking about. Because people were almost speaking about William. They were so fond of him as they spoke at his memorials, almost as if he just showed up this way. And this businessman said this, To myself there comes a new sense of assurance as I think of it. Because I recognize that this overcoming life of his was not lived in the strength of any innate ability or natural gifts. It was the grace of God in him that made his life such a benediction to those with whom he came in contact. And listen to this. The same resources are available to your faith and to mine. And I want to leave you with this. 
We're going to take up an offering, a special offering in a moment. But after that one is taken up, we'll continue to have our little pirate box over there by the wall, and we'll take up our offering. And I would say to you, following the apostle, I give you no rule. Here's what I want to leave you with. God has lavished undeserved mercy on us. Here sits a room largely of Gentiles which should have inherited wrath and be boxed out from all those promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yet, we are covered over with these promises. And the the fullness of that is God sending His Son that if you believe in Him, to take our guilt on Him and to give us His righteousness. And God has said this, that whether you are okay right now as far as bills or you are unemployed right now, if you're sick, if you're healthy, God has said this, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You have every spiritual blessing in Christ In as much as you're bountiful, you're going to reap a bounty. If you give safe, you will reap safely. If you sow at a level that is odd, you will reap at a level that in a wonderful way is odd. And it will be that there will be men and women, not only in this church, but to the ends of the earth, who will thank God that He provided for them and that they will feel His love through your generosity. Thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You. Thank You for Your Son who is wealth, who is fullness, that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Him. Father, thank You that Your adopted sons and daughters will be co-heirs with Him when He inherits everything. We pray that this would grab our hearts. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.